back to Kyle's internal monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Babylon 5 Season 4 episode, Intersections in Real Time. This episode is one of those episodes that I have been really wanting to talk about, but also fearing to talk about at the same time, because I'm nowhere near as uh, intelligent enough or skilled enough to really break down every minute detail in this episode from the thematic perspective, from the social commentary perspective, from the character-driven perspective, um, because this is a true masterpiece. It's 42 minutes of pure, unadulterated treaties on the power of interrogation and how um, you can twist certain things around and destroy someone's humanity very simply. It is one of the most brutal episodes of television you'll ever watch and not a single ounce of blood spilled. Because you don't have to, you know, focus on gore. You, you notice this in a lot of modern TV where you, you, they can get away with it. You know, uh, to the advent of uh, streaming services, not having a ratings board, or, uh, you know, HBO shows gaining popularity. There's a lot of emphasis on, like, absolute miserable, uh, you know, physical torture and gore fests. And yet, they don't hold a candle to what the interrogator does to Sheridan right here. Because this kind of stuff is done on a regular basis in real life. Some of it, hell, it's even considered illegal. And it's actually a crime against humanity. Uh, because mental torture and uh, depriving someone of food and sleep uh, is... These are basic human needs and rights. And by depriving that, you torture someone far more than a punch or some sort of drill you know, burying into someone's leg can ever do. You are literally destroying them from the inside by denying them their humanity. Uh, once again, one of the most horrifying hours of television you can watch with not a single uh, drop of blood spilled. It, 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 really, it really just shows um, the maturity of Babylon 5 compared to a lot of TV. And I'm not saying that, you know, modern TV is immature. That's stupid. You know, there's a lot of really brilliant TV shows out there currently. You know, Watchmen, uh, you know, the sequel to the, the comic uh, For All Mankind. You know, these are really brilliant, you know, TV shows with wonderful casts and wonderful writers, and very talented cast and crew all around. But Babylon 5 was ahead of its time uh, and was restricted in a way a lot of TV shows are not now and used that restriction to its advantage. There's an old saying, creativity strives on restriction. And I have seen that and disagree with it all at the same time. I... Uh, I'm sort of in the middle ground of that statement, but here with Babylon 5, its restraint with using physical violence is to its betterment, because it shows the true psychological horror of what actual torture does to people. 
So this was intended to be the season four finale. Uh, long before uh, the cancellation crisis, um, this was intended to be the final episode, episode 22. Uh, you know, uh, the Shadow War would have gone on for like a couple more episodes. And then uh, the Membari Civil War would have gone on for a couple more episodes. And thus that puts this here at episode 22. And we'd end on that. And then season five would open with the liberation uh, and the, the, the ending of the Civil War. And then continue on to whatever is next uh, with season five. There is a questionable thing of whether season five has some pacing issues. I'll get into that when I get there, which we're getting very close to. Um, but of course, season five is an elongated version of plans cut short. So, uh, in something in season four is truncated, <laughs> you know, plans. Uh, so the pacing is kind of all over the place, uh, and a lot of it wasn't intentional. Uh, but I think this would have made an excellent season finale, especially with the way the episode ends, with it all circling back around with a new interrogator asking the exact same questions. The table that Sheridan was, uh, you know, pulled out on a fake execution turns turns out to be just a little workstation for the interrogator. Uh, it, it's all just going to repeat again and again and again until Sheridan is broken and nothing and miserable until he gives in until he finally says yes and leaving that off on a season you know thinking about watching it you know uh live of course i i couldn't have done that i was very very young uh you know uh the sense in 98 so i would have been about one year old you know but uh you know, you have a gap of several months, eight to ten, sometimes even a year or more between seasons. And uh, that that anxiety that would come from knowing Sheridan is stuck in that cycle um, would really drives a lot of the, the, the points of this episode home and I think would be very effective as a finale. Now, uh... There is some really beautiful stuff done in this episode that I think uh, should be taught in schools. Personally, I do think that this should be, you know, a firm part of every creative writing class in high school and university. This episode should be dissected and taught because it is essentially two people in a blank room talking for 45 minutes. And it is one of the most tense, excruciatingly scary episodes of a TV show you'll ever watch. And it's just two people talking. You know, that is, that shows the power of B5, uh, its writing, JMS's writing, uh, its, its ability to draw you into the characters and their situations that you are able to feel everything that Sheridan goes through. You know, a lot of people, non-writers, will look at, oh, it's just two people talking in a room. How how hard is that? Anybody who says that has never written a thing in their life. Uh, getting characters to naturally talk to each other, to naturally 
uh, bring out the personalities and move the plot along is already a very difficult task. As one of my writing teachers, Bernard, used to say, all dialogue is contrived. There is no such thing as a natural dialogue between characters. Because written dialogue sounds nothing like what's spoken real-world conversation sounds like it. It never will, because you can't get that across in writing. Uh, and on top of that, you have uh, 42 minutes to fill, and I've written a short 10-minute play where uh, it's just two people talking, but that was excruciating the right because you you have to bring out things naturally you can't just let it flow from one thing to the next with no connective tissue uh and it's it's gotta seem you know natural it's gotta hook the audience it's gotta keep their attention uh and you know you you have the blank page and you can get the words flowing but whether they make sense or not is another question entirely so that is the issue and the fact that JMS was able to do 45 minutes of this is quite frankly astounding and should speak volumes to his talent uh now let's get into the actual sort of meat of what the interrogator does um, he, he throughout uses carrot and the stick mentality of reward and punishment. Uh, you know, it's a classic psychological thing of, uh, you know, you, you teach a dog to do something by, you know, uh, if you don't want them to do something, you scold them. If you want them to do something, you reward them with a treat. And over time, they begin to associate good thing, uh, equal what my owner wants. You know, oh, do as told, get reward. Do not as told, get punished. And uh, dogs are obviously more malleable than humans in the ability to teach them, but these techniques have proven useful towards humans. Uh, and given sufficient time, you can reprogram or brainwash a human in this way. Uh, and we see that here, uh, where he is constantly... Uh, you know, rewarding Sheridan or punishing him depending on what he says. Uh, little things like when when Sheridan calls out the the, the his constant oh it's it's lunchtime it's dinner time it's daytime, uh, you know nonsense. Uh, and Sheridan tries to prove him wrong. You know, he he's very casual about it. He answers Sheridan's question and then he presses a button. He went oh one more thing. Don't contradict me. Ever. And then he continues on. And he constantly, throughout, is saying, you know, I'm not responsible for what you are um, receiving, the punishment you're receiving. Uh, in many ways, he victim blames. Uh, he, he's constantly saying, you're the one that put yourself here. Uh, you're the one to blame. It's not me. It's them who wants this to happen. If you just go along with what they say, you won't hurt anymore. You know, uh, and he's constantly trying to frame himself as not necessarily a benefactor or, uh, or an antagonist to Sheridan. He presents himself as an ordinary guy, a working man. 
this is just his job. His job happens to be to destroy the humanity of whoever's in front of him, but it is his job, and he is going about it in a very orderly, very job-like manner. And he, he tries to be humble, he tries to present himself as ordinary, and a lot of times he'll engage in like itty-bitty small talk uh, with Sheridan to sort of portray himself as just a guy. You know, that, that scene where he's, you know, Patty looking for his for his glasses and then he exits, goes to his glasses and comes back and he says, you know, I, I'm always losing them. You know, it's a bit of humanizing him to sort of say, hey, uh, you know, this ain't my fault, dude. You know, you, you, you know, I'm just a guy doing a job. Uh, and it's sort of that callousness about it uh, that 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 brings up the true horror of what he's doing um, because he is the kind of person, whether he believes his own lines or not, he is trying to establish a narrative that it's not me, it's them, and hey, I'm not necessarily on your side, nor am I against you, don't hold it against me. I'm just working for a paycheck to feed my family. And that, that kind of mentality of the I was only following orders mentality is something very hard to judge. Um, it has been uh, debated back and forth for decades and decades, if not more. Um, and, you know, there's people who go along with something horrible because they are scared or they're blackmailed. And then there's people who use that defense because they just didn't care. And the interrogator uh, seems to me the kind of person who just doesn't care. This is his job. He does it. And whether he gets a sense of enjoyment out of it is his own uh, personal preference. But at least he's getting paid. Uh, and speaking of the, the nighttime, daytime, lunchtime, dinnertime thing, that's all a part of establishing a narrative. Uh, he's keep He keeps trying to bring out... This idea that truth is subjective, uh, that there is no such thing as objective truth, um, which is ironic considering you know the uh, the Shadow War was fought all about the idea of objective truth, but anyway, um, by by basically sort of uh, turning on the light and then turning off the light to establish daytime, nighttime, and then uh, saying good morning uh, or afternoon, and then bringing out the sandwich, what he's doing is he's demonstrating that Sheridan uh, is desperate enough to bend the truth. You know, if it's lunchtime, you know, you, you can eat. If it's not lunchtime, you can't eat. So which is it? And of course, Sheridan, having been starved and, you know, desperate enough to want food, is of course just going to grab the sandwich and eat, and therefore bending to the interrogator's will. Having now justified that truth is subjective, that whatever your personal truth is, is what matters right now and nothing else. Of course, the interrogator um, refuses to see the nuance in objective versus subjective truth, Everything is a nuanced in this world. There is nothing plain and chain about anything. And the wonderful thing about truth and the horrifying thing about truth is that there is such thing as objective truth. Things can be real and true. You know, the, once you that, that is the point 
of court cases. That is the point of a detective. It is to people to find the truth in criminal cases uh, by interpreting sources, finding evidence, and hopefully discovering the, what really happened. Whether they're successful or not is another thing entirely. But people can trick themselves into believing what is true. It is shaped by opinion, by biases, by their own personal stance on things, their way of life, and it is affected by memory. There's a reason why, um, you know, first-hand accounts, eyewitness statements on court cases have long been disputed as admissible in court. Um because for the simple fact that memory can be edited uh you know in a stressful situation you might not pick up everything and your mind will struggle to fill in the gaps and thus you may remember something entirely differently i'm gonna pull something right now actually you know um i uh was uh sort of writing up a little essay on one of my favorite um comic book storylines called DC the New Frontier written by the late great Darwin Cook and in that uh, Batman has a line uh, where he he looks at Martian Manhunter who he believes is an alien uh, who is in his shape-shifted form as a human uh, and says you know I have a $70,000 radioactive rock uh, for uh, to, to use on the one in Metropolis for you I just need a penny for a box of matches. And when I was reciting that in my essay, I wrote seven million and a dime. My memory had proven false. And I had to go back and check. You know, that sort of thing. Memories can be edited, can be changed. Uh, there is no concrete um, sort of truth in your memories. What is true is what happens then and there, and whether anybody can remember it is another question entirely. There is such thing as an objective and subjective truth all at the same time. And the interrogator refuses to acknowledge the nuance of it. And uh, he is throughout the entire ordeal trying to bring Sheridan to his side. And of course, Sheridan keeps wanting to deny it, and his Sheridan's denial and wanting this to be contradictory to the interrogator, to be aggressive, to constantly tell him no, is turned against him when the interrogator asks, asks leading questions that he then twists around to stab Sheridan in the back by saying, like, are you, you know, the only reason why you would rise up against your government is if you were being manipulated by outside forces. And uh, were you being manipulated? And, of course, uh, you know, Sheridan says, no, of course not. And he goes, really? You weren't influenced by anything? Uh, you know, everybody in real life is influenced by someone or something, you know. Uh, and he proves his point by the lunch, the lunchtime and feeding him the sandwich thing. Um, because, yes, we are influenced by everybody around us. <laughs> that doesn't mean that they're going to make us take rash actions or, uh, or actively manipulating. He just twisted the word of manipulation and influence to be the same thing so that he could get his narrative across. 
Once again, classic interrogation, establish a narrative, make your interrogatee believe that narrative is true, and thus you win them over. Notice how uh, he casually mentions Sheridan's father to put him on edge. He reassures us, oh, he's, he's fine, but he's in one of our facilities. Considering Sheridan is one of his facilities, and he was constantly being, you know, touted out as being uh, treated fine, even though he was not. Uh, that will put an anxiety on Sheridan to act rashly, because when something emotional uh, is put on our brain, that's all we can think about. Um, and then um, the, the the scene with the Jirazi, um, you know, uh, there there is the implication uh, that that Drazi may be a human wearing a mask or a, a real, honest to God Drazi that has been manipulated and brainwashed stuff to believe uh, in supporting a actively xenophobic Earth Alliance. Um, the we get no confirmation, uh, but there's enough hints. Uh, and you could go either way. But the real horror of that scene, well, there are two major horrors of that scene, is that by bringing the Drazi in and having him confess, first it feeds into the xenophobia, uh, because, of course, Sheridan's never met this Drazi in his life, ever. But also, uh, there's that scene, or the, the, that line where the Drazi has to implicate you know, Sheridan, Susan, Delenn, and then some random senator that, uh, you know, uh, Sheridan's never heard of. And in response, uh, the interrogator says, waste not, what not. You know, the implication that there's been a witch hunt. And there, we've seen this witch hunts before, especially in Illusion of Truth, you know, the constant uh, sort of implication of you know actors and writers it's mccarthyism um it's attacking anybody uh, on the pure uh suspicion of wrongdoing rather than any real wrongdoing or any valuable proof it is fear tactics uh he is in the way so therefore he must be dealt away with and this is kind of reflected in uh, the the interrogator's no rights rant. Um, you know, we live in a very real world where uh, people's rights in uh, places like Guantanamo Bay were actively ignored or, uh, you know, unjustly denied. Uh, and a lot of what they did was unconstitutional and vaguely uh you know uh war crimes in a way and it's very uncomfortable to think about uh and you can see that no right speech being very applicable to today because that sort of mentality that uh that uh an interrogator must bring you to their sign must bring you to their narrative means that they must strip you of your humanity and one of the most important things of being a human is your right to live and by stripping your rights away they decrease your humanity make you no more than an animal uh, and speaking of crimes against humanity such war crimes the staged execution of the Drazi which turns out to be entirely fake and then the fake 
staged execution of Sheridan, which turns out to be completely fake, and they were just moving him to another interrogation room. Uh, both of these things are considered uh, absolutely uh, horrible, horrible, amoral things that you should never do, and is actually considered a psychological torture, and in many places is considered illegal. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's done to this day. People still do it, but uh, a lot of countries have actually considered it illegal because it's an interrogation technique that does not require you to harm the person, except psychologically. And there's been notes from psychologists interviewing these people after the fact of just how mentally broken they are after these staged executions. There is this really interesting uh, bit, and it's one of the few times that the interrogators honestly, uh, <laughs> honestly honest to Sheridan in the episode. He makes mention that they could, at any time, bring in telepaths, you know, telepathically reprogram him, uh, you know, or use tech to manufacture his confession, but no, they want it true and honest and that is shown when they when they stage the fake execution and bring him into the new interrogation room because to you know to fake it with tech someone smart enough could be able to detect that or use a program to notice that it's artificial um not all telepaths are, uh, are uh, you know, sus uh, are, are loyal to Psychor and therefore could detect that Sheridan has been reprogrammed in his very public speech. Um, or people may simply just disbelieve him uh, if it doesn't truly come from the heart. Uh, and so uh, what they try and do is they try and break him and then reprogram him through conventional means. You know, they, they sit him in that chair, they, they, they deprive him of food, and they give him the poison, which I'll get into in a second. That uh, makes him barf everything up and then strap him to the chair to the point he can't move. Imagine being a straight-backed metal chair for hours on end no way to move, no way to adjust, the pain in your back and your legs and just the pure agony, in addition to having, you know, the same words blasted over the intercom at loud volumes, ensuring that you get no sleep. It's going to drive you insane. Uh, and Sheridan's very lucky he didn't break, because he probably would have broken me. Um, and the reason they're doing this is they want Sheridan as a symbol, not just as a broken man to prove they can do it. And as a demoralizing factor, they want him to be a sacrificial lamb to send him off uh, and proclaim the greatest truth of our age, you cannot fight the system. And then uh, uh, after time passes and the rebellion has been quashed and uh, he has continued to inform people that there is no way that even someone like him could not fight the government, he would then quietly be disposed of when people have forgotten who he is and all his significance. That's what they want. They want someone to pass on and mythologize the idea that this Clark regime, this Earth government, is immovable, that it is untouchable. 
and that you are a little insignificant speck that at any point in time they can step on and squash you out of existence. So you better keep in your lane. And I like how at the very end, Sheridan manages to work up enough courage and that, that beautiful scene where he says, you know, uh, uh, when the interrogator asks if he can win, he's like, every time I say no. Beautifully delivered by Bruce Boxliner. But the beauty of that scene comes from the fact that Sheridan works up enough courage uh, and is smart enough to turn the interrogator's narrative around to bite him in his own ass. Interrogators are constantly barking on about you know, subjective truth, that truth is personal to you, there's no such thing as objective truth, and he keeps trying to prove the point to him over and over and over and over and over and over, and then Sheridan goes, but you keep insisting that the system is unbeatable, unmovable. Well, if that's subjective, if truth is subjective, then maybe you can fight the system. Maybe you can, because... I say that isn't true, that the that the government is unmovable and cannot be beaten. I say it's true, then I can't. And it is a brilliant way to dismantle the interrogator's entire narrative. Um, and that's when the interrogator gets very desperate. Um, now, the, the poisoning, when I touch on that, is... Um, he he mentions you know that uh, eating a uh, eating poison you know a little bit of poison every day will make you immune. And he was like, I always thought it was a metaphor until now. Um, interestingly, um, it's a metaphor for both the interrogator and Sheridan, because effectively what the interrogator is doing by mentioning he thinks it's a metaphor is quietly in the back of Sheridan's head, demonstrating. Uh, his point that truth is subjective by making Sheridan eat a little poison uh, because he is desperately hungry and therefore is willing to swallow anything the interrogator gives him whether it's poisonous or not and thus he's able to or willing to bend the knee when it suits him uh, So, and the interrogator is you know, eating a little bit of poison each day to do this horrible work simply because he just wants to get paid. Uh, so it's a, it's a nice rounded metaphor that uh, that shows the vileness of a situation like this, that someone can take these words, these ideas, and twist them and turn perfectly good people into collaborating uh, by making the truth palatable enough. You know... Going from, you know, uh, ordinary life to killing civilians is a massive leap. But if you can stage that out to, uh, you know, uh, ordinary life to owning a gun and then owning a gun to you know, practice, etc., etc., and slowly over time, you nudge the person towards the killing of civilians idea, you know, eventually those leaps won't seem like a thing. You know, A to Z is a massive leap in the alphabet, but A to B is small. Then B to C, small. It's a gradual change, gradually eating the poison until at last it doesn't affect you anymore 
and you enjoy its taste. This is a beautiful episode. It could have been a stage play. It's just two people, and it's brilliant. It's minimalistic, and it uses this minimalism to be incredibly psychologically complex and thematically complex. Hell, there's even talk about how Sheridan's apolitical, that, uh, and, and how important that was to getting him established in B5, because if you remember back in Season 2 when he was put on, everybody thought he would be loyal to Clark, because he's incredibly loyal to Earth. Everybody thought he would be a pushover. You know, he's a military man. He doesn't think much. Uh, you know, he, he believes in duty and honor and loyalty, and that's it. But that's the thing. Standing up for the right thing shouldn't be a political action. Nor should it be holding your government accountable, or people in general accountable for their actions. And that's why Sheridan, someone who is a firm believer in morality and the belief that a soldier is to protect and serve its people, someone who is not political, was able to be brought into a political station as a stooge for the government and turn it around against them. Because these situations should not be political actions because it should be the right thing to do. Um, honestly, I think this episode needs to be taught in schools. I know it never will because Babylon 5 is, first of all, the genre fiction, and genre fiction has a sort of, uh, misnomer about it in academic circles, but also Babylon 5 is, you know, despite the many changes it brought to the American television landscape has fallen into obscurity in recent years. But anyway... This is a really brilliant episode, and I only wish I was smart enough to really dig do through every single minute detail, because honestly, every second of this episode is important, and thematically coherent, and socially aware, and full of political and social commentary to, uh, you know, drive home a lot of points that are incredibly and scarily relevant to today. Uh... But that is the end of this episode, and I shall see you next time for the beginning of the end of Season 4. Till then, bye.